Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. And today we're talking about a topic that most science podcast listeners would think, wait, what? Why alien abductions? Really? You guys are going to take that seriously? Well, I, I think the, the the tone is the question, right? Because yeah. A, a lot of a lot of science uh, brands will discuss alien abduction, uh, but they'll take a very hard, skeptical approach. And certainly, science is the, the the bedrock of this show. And I feel like we we tend to take a skeptical approach with most topics. Yeah. Now, that being said, we always try and make a point of um, of acknowledging that with paranormal experience, there is still some sort of an experience going on there. There's often some sort of a memory. There's something something that goes on in the human psyche that makes it quasi-real or real for the individual. And so we always make a point of, of trying to honor that and and respect that as much as possible while also keeping, you know, one foot firmly planted on the earth. Yeah, exactly. And alien abduction is similar to some of the other topics we've covered before, like, say, uh, uh, satanic panic and exorcisms, mm-hmm. demons, a- yeah. uh, angels also like the stuff that we did with John D. And what's interesting to look at here is that there is a quantifiable large amount of academic research into this topic. It's, it's actually interesting. Um, one of the pieces that I looked at for the, this episode is by someone named JD Finkelstein and they basically look at a review of all the academic literature in the last, like, let's say, 35 years. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's interesting is they said, oh, there's really not that much available. But I mean, like, there was too much to read for this episode. There was so much out there. I mean, I just saw in all the research databases that we have access to, there's just wall-to-wall uh, information. And really, like, what we put together for this, it's going to fill up probably two episodes. Yes, yeah, because because uh, there are basically two large categories we have to discuss. On one hand, there is the 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 experience side of it. So individuals claiming to have experienced an alien abduction, yeah, and generally in the process have seen a UFO as well. Uh, and there, so there are all the the various ways we can try and understand that from a skeptical standpoint. You know, what sort of hallucinations or memory, um, false memory uh, scenarios are going on to make that possible? The power of belief, etc. And then on top of that, there's this cultural idea too, because you can you can certainly and we'll get into this more as we pr- pr- progress here but you can go back through history and can find plenty of examples of individuals having um wondrous or terrifying often sexual encounters with demons angels fairies what have you yeah. but it's only in the 20th century and uh, a little bit beyond here that we have had these experiences with extraterrestrials and ufo's so then you start saying well okay if this is just the coding is this, if this is just the sock puppet that we end up putting over this uh, abnormal sensory experience, then where does the sock puppet come from? What are all the various cultural threads that come together to weave that unique form? Yeah, it is. It's fascinating when you look at it from that perspective. And it's still fascinating, I think, even if you, like some researchers, think you've totally nailed it down and you figured out exactly how to explain what's happening here, right? Yeah. Um, and what's interesting is that even though we've got all this fiction that really kind of slowed down, I'd say a little bit before 2000, 
um, right around when the X-Files started to fade. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, we have all this, this alien abduction fiction that was really big, like X-Files, Close Encounters, et cetera. Um, Fire in the Sky, which neither of us have seen yet, but I, I, I'm planning to check out before we do our trailer talk. Yeah, that's one I want to watch before next week. Yeah. And Communion, I've never seen either. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that? I have not. I'm familiar with, uh, I haven't read the book either, but I'm, I'm familiar with his story. I've read, I want to say I read an, an Atlantic piece about him. Okay. Uh, years back. But so there was a lot going on between the probably like mid seventies up until the, the end of the nineties that was in our entertainment about this. So we all kind of think we know what this is all about. We, we, we understand the alien abduction narrative. Yeah, I remember as a kid watching a lot of unsolved mysteries and, yeah. uh, you know, a lot of those episodes dealt with just unsolved normal crimes and occasionally Matthew McConaughey showed up, right? To, uh, <laughs> to, to, uh, to reenact it. But they would get into these supernatural elements and then they would get into alien abductions. And I remember just being, uh, like terrified and amazed by these tales because yeah. they presented them in that kind of like hard boiled detective narrative way where it's like, this is, this is really happening. We don't understand it, but this is what these people say happened to them. And yeah. it made me, it made me kind of terrified just to sleep at night for a while because I would imagine the, the aliens coming for me. I would, I would get a little nervous if I stared up into the night sky too much because it would be like, all right, if I, if I glimpse them, they'll know I saw them and then yeah. they will come for me. They're like, all right, well, you forced our hands. Now we've got to abduct you. I don't know what it is, but I've never been susceptible to the scary factor of alien abduction. Really? Huh. Yeah. Like when you didn't, did you watch Unsolved Mysteries? Because I mean, that I music did, was terrifying. But like, I think that there was a part of me, even at that age, that was kind of like, Whatever happens, it's going to be pretty interesting. Oh, <laughs> like, well, it's well, going to be interesting. I mean? Like, yeah. like, and I guess too that I was so immersed in Star Wars and Star Trek and other science fiction that my mind wouldn't allow me to go to the really horrific areas that alien abduction narratives go to. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, I see a movie like uh, what was it, Dark Skies, that came out like two or three years ago. I think that was like maybe the latest uh, of these kind of horror movies. Or the there was one recently the. Phoenix incident, I think. It's like a found footage one. Yeah, and then there was one that came out a few years back, um, the um, the Fifth Kind, I want to oh, say. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. And those have never really resonated with me in the way... So, for instance, the Demon Possession movies do, right? Mm-hmm. And that's because I think, like, the way that my cultural background was set up, that narrative was far scarier to me, even though that narrative could be placed on top of similar uh, psychological experiences, right, in the way that alien abduction narratives are? Yeah. Uh, you know, it, I guess it just really depends on how you approach it, like what your background and culture is. Because certainly yeah. growing up in rural Tennessee in the 90s, I, I've discussed before how there was definitely this 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 sense within certain circles that the, the demons were real, that, that the supernatural realm was real within yeah. the confines of sort of fundamentalist Christian uh, upbringing. But then at the same time, you were, th- there were these voices of, you know, I want to say, you know, more scientifically sound, uh, reasonable voices that filter through into, into stuff like Unsolved Mysteries. And you watch yeah. that and you're saying, okay, well, you know, th- this seems like it could be true as well. So it, it just, de- I guess it depends on like where you're firmly entrenched. Yeah. And so for that reason, I think it's important for us to start off here with just a 
bare bones basic description of what we're talking about here yep. with alien abductions. So an alien abduction specifically is when a person claims to have been taken by any being from outside Earth against their will. And these surged in the 1960s and then waned through the years with the expansion of space technology and exploration. But we have to be clear here, there's no physical evidence that supports claims of alien abduction or even that extraterrestrial intelligence exists. Now, skeptics say that these reports are either hallucinations or they're lies. On the other side of it, some scientists have attributed these experiences to sleep paralysis or repressed trauma. And this is probably a good point where we should say that our sibling podcast, Stuff They Don't Want You to Know, has covered this extensively over the years. So if there's other stuff you want to look for, podcasts, also videos, they've done a lot of videos. Yeah, this is kind of their bread and butter. Right, exactly. Now, before those of you out there, and I, I felt the same way when I was going to the research, get too judgmental about our friends and neighbors out there who have experienced this, I want to throw a couple stats at you that you might find surprising. A 2012 National Geographic poll found that 77% of Americans believe that aliens have visited Earth. So that's huge. Yeah. And 80% believe that alien life exists on other planets. A 2015 Ipsos poll found that 56% of Americans believe in UFOs. So either way you cut that, it's the majority of people. Now, for me, I guess like, I fall on that, like, I don't know if aliens have visited Earth or not, but yeah, I mean, we do the science podcast, we talk about the possibilities of alien life all the time. If I had to, like, vote one way or the other, mm-hmm. I would probably say yes. Yeah, I, I I tend to fall the same way. I think, well, yes, given what we know of, of life and based on the research that we've we've done and the sources we've looked at, uh, it seems entirely possible that there's life out there in the universe somewhere. Now, it gets a little more complicated from there on out because then you say, well, okay, if there's life, then is it intelligent life? And then, uh, and, and you can say, all right, well, based on our model, you, know, you can tweak the Drake equation in different ways. Look at the, in, could it, could this, uh, intelligent life form actually evolve? And then is it still around? Okay. So maybe there's, it's not just a slime mold on another planet. Maybe there's something out there that's capable of looking up into the night sky yeah. and forming its own, uh, anxiety-ridden dreams of visitations from other worlds. But then that visitation becomes the next realm, right? Is it possible that this this creature, this alien life, is capable of visiting our world? Right. And in this, we get into an area we discussed a little bit in our interplanetary war episode. Because even if spacefaring aliens do exist, could they reach us? And part of the problem here is distance, staggering interstellar distance and the lack of any concrete proven technological means to traverse those distances at a reasonable pace. Even the more conservative estimates and like the closer, uh, you know, planetary uh, homeworlds or outbases for mm. for uh, some sort of a civilization like this, it would still result in a trip of years, right? And uh, if they did have spacecraft capable of performing the sort of high the high speed maneuvers that are described in UFO sightings, then uh, physicist uh, Michio Kaku insists that technology for such a craft and the ability for a living passenger to survive its G-forces, well, those are well beyond humanity's modern technology as well. So 
do you think that they visited Earth then? Like uh, that's a that's sort of are they capable of visiting Earth? Mm-hmm. Seems and like then would they want to? Would be no, right? Yeah, and then would they want to or have they? Yeah. Well, I mean, if I mean, if you get to the point where you say yes, they exist. Yes, they're intelligent. Yes, they have spacecraft capable of visiting us. Right. Then we again we come back to basing. We have to base an alien life form more or less on how we think and behave. Right. And we know that we would want to check them out, so they would probably want to check us out. So yeah, I can I can buy into that. But it's coming over that that technological step, that technological leap that's required is hard hard to to get past. Yeah, that's kind of where you get to that. Uh, uh, I guess I'm thinking along the lines of Independence Day rather than communion, right? So like <laughs> we jump to the point of like where we've imagined a society that. Uh, has the technology, but all we can picture is ourselves. So then subsequently we, we apply our own reasoning. This connects back to Svalbard, the Svalbard episode we yeah. did a couple of weeks ago. Why would we go there? To exploit its resources, right? Yeah. Uh, so I mean, but we would love to think otherwise, right? Like that mm-hmm. they, they just want to communicate or do experiments on us, but. But the thing is we come back around to the proof, right? If they've, if they visited the planet in the past or are visiting it now, where is the hardcore proof? Uh, yeah. And uh, and likewise, if they've abducted people for experiments, where's the proof? Because from a scientific standpoint, there's just insufficient evidence to make a case for alien visitation. I'm not saying there there aren't people out there that are attempting to provide evidence, but most UFO sightings depend on fallible human accounts, imperfect footage, and just rampant conspiracy theory. All of it tends to crumble under the scrutiny of the scientific method, and and, and that's our best way of determining what's reality and what is ultimately fantasy. And uh, and also it's it's worth reminding everyone that, you know, scientific inquiry hinges on something called the null hypothesis, which means the burden of proof is on anyone making a positive claim. So uh, if you say a dog ate your homework, great. Well, where's the testable evidence? You saw an alien spacecraft? Excellent. Let's test and validate your story. So in other words, it's up to individuals who have seen the UFO. It's up to individuals who have experienced the abductions or buy into these stories. It's up to them to provide the proof, and we just don't have it. You know, along the same lines as the null hypothesis, the scientific world doesn't go on the defense every time someone sees a ghost. Even in the presence of of testable evidence, perfectly terrestrial claims demand rigorous testing and a high degree of certainty in the results. So I guess to put a cap in our position going into this episode and looking at the research, you know, as I've said in the past when we've talked about sort of paranormal phenomenon and then tried to shed a scientific light on them, I may not believe in this, but I believe that the people who believe are being honest. I believe they believe. And uh, it's important to note that most of the research has focused on attempts that are either trying to prove or disprove the existence of aliens rather than what's actually going on. What what makes us want to focus on this is that it's an opportunity to learn about our own psychology, mm-hmm. right? That's what's really interesting about the alien abduction narrative. And I want to uh, put in a quote here that's from that J.D. Finkelstein piece that I read for this. They said, in the end, while the events abductees report are unlikely to have occurred, the earnestness with which they endorse these memories is a strong indicator that memory is a malleable and complicated phenomenon with implications for a wide range of psychological topics. So that alone seems like it begs for stuff to blow your mind to examine it. Yeah, every time I engage with this topic or, or topics like this, I'm always left with with the uh, the realization that approaching this kind of thing from a, a skeptical, scientific, but open-minded point of view, you end up leaving the topic 
not feeling like you're you have a safe distance from it. You know, like you have a safe distance from um, an alien abduction uh, yeah. experience touching your life. You end up realizing, oh, well, it's actually not that far away anyway. When you take into account all of the all of the various uh, psychological events uh, that can play into it, like the the basic. Uh, the, the basic reality that perception of reality is its own form of hallucination. When you start counting right. all of that in and just how uh, how easily memory can be manipulated by yourself or others, then you realize, oh, well, I'm not safe from this kind of experience. It could it could easily it could easily happen under the right scenarios. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, in preparation for this episode, I revisited one of my favorite X-Files episodes, uh Jose Chung's from outer space, uh, which if, if nobody out there has seen it, I highly recommend, even if you've never seen any X-Files, you mm-hmm. don't need to. It's in season three, uh, right smack in the middle. I think it doesn't connect to any other episodes. It's written by Darren Morgan, who in, in my opinion is one of the best writers of the show ever. And it is a fantastic, but also relatively amusing examination of a lot of what we're going to talk about here today. And they look at it from that perspective that like human psychology and how we perceive the world is so inherently skewed that there's a lot of different ways to take a look at this. And in the, in the episode itself, there's sort of like three or four different viewpoints of the alien abduction narrative, right? And like how it could play out. I don't want to say too much more than that other than that. It's, I, I love it. It's a fantastic episode and it has a, uh, a uh, Jesse, the body Ventura in it too. Oh, which well, is there you go. Why I was hoping you'd get a chance to check it out because <laughs> he's sort of a surprise figure that pops up as he, he shows up as a man in black. All right. Well, maybe I'll get to watch it for next week. Then. Yeah, that'd yeah. be cool. I think it's time for a visitation of our own here. Though. Oh. We should probably take a quick uh, commercial break. And when we come back, uh, we will dive into the topic. We'll start talking about some of the recurring elements of the sort of standardized alien abduction uh, experience and then go from there. Sounds good. All right, we're back. So let's get into the recurring elements. And now this is one of the fascinating things for somebody like myself, who's, you know, I've seen a lot of X-Files. Uh, I thought I kind of knew everything, you right. know, that there was to know. But like really looking at the homework here, there are parts of the recurring elements that I wasn't quite aware of. Well, one of the interesting things here is that you kind of have two levels and they're not they're not isolated from each other. So you have what people began reporting about alien abduction scenarios across the decades. And then you have what was portrayed in the media and in science fiction. And then the, the media portrayals begin to influence the experience. Yep. So it be, it becomes a little messy there. It but. is like a weird Ouroboros that's yeah. like eating itself. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Well, all right, let's go down. Here's some bullet points just about like what are recurring elements that we're going to unpack so that we can get a sense of what's actually happening here. Now, alien abduction stories usually involve the alien abductor conducting experiments or other procedures on the abductee. Okay, that's one that we all pretty much know, right? Right. They usually occur in an isolated area with very few cases involving more than one person being reported. Now, that's interesting because, as we'll talk about later, the the very first big case of this involved two people, but usually they involve people on their own. Right. They usually begin with the sighting of a UFO or some kind of lights in the sky. Uh, 
And then most reports involve an individual being placed in a trance-like state while they're being experimented on. Now, some people report that the the exams and stuff like that, that happens in their homes rather than on a, a ship or something like mm-hmm. that. Here's one of the things I always had a problem with with, with these uh, explanations. The assumption is that you're taken into outer space when this happens, right? But I always thought, well, what? that seems like a lot of work for the aliens. Wouldn't they just stay in orbit or stay like stay within the atmosphere somewhere you know what i mean like yeah like it seems like why do they have to fly all the way down and all the way back up again well two answers if i'm going to go with just the straight up uh sort of skeptical technological yeah uh profile here i would say well their ships are apparently crazy powerful anyway able to True. zip around at unbelievable speed so going back into orbit for them is no big deal maybe yeah the other side of this would be that you look back at these past paranormal experiences and what one is taken to the fairy realm. One is one yep. sins into heaven. And therefore this, this matches up more with our mythological expectations for visitation. Right. Absolutely. So that's why I think it's maybe more surprising when it occurs in the home. Yeah. Right? That that's like less along the lines of what we're expecting. But then again, uh, when the angel visited uh, Mary, Mm-hmm. In the Bible, it was just in the home. She didn't get to go visit orbit or heaven. Hey, man, that was a one-of-a-kind thing. <laughs> uh, look, though, other common factors that show up in these narratives are beams of light, and the beams of light can both paralyze and make you float, as well as abductors implanting devices, collecting tissue samples, and, as we know, probing orifices using strange machines. Now, some people also report psychological experiments related to memory or pain. Now, this is that was one thing that I had never heard of before. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting. And then once the procedures are done, the abductees are usually returned home. Now, the aliens are usually described as small figures with smooth, shiny skin, large heads and bulging eyes. This is the similar gray aliens that were depicted in early science fiction films and there's a hierarchy that's sometimes described between the aliens, where the small ones perform menial work while the large ones are the leaders. They are usually said to communicate telepathically. Now, of course, uh, Robert and I, one of the first things that we started talking about when we were prepping this episode was, uh, gosh, I guess it's two years old now, maybe, that Saturday Night Live uh, skit with Kate McKinnon and Ryan Gosling. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're They're playing alien abductees who are explaining their experience to like the Pentagon or something like that. Yeah. And, and they have vastly different experiences, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like to, uh, most of them have this pleasant hippy dippy kind of experience. And then one of them has this more traumatic experience with the aliens. Yeah. And it's, it's sort of explained in the narrative of the skit that it's because there's different hierarchies of aliens, right? <laughs> like there's the, the larger leader aliens and then there's the smaller aliens. And I, I believe the way that Kate McKinnon refers to it was that she wasn't dealing with the top brass. Yeah, which is uh, always amusing to me when I watch that. It's a great skit because Ryan Gosling is, is having extreme difficulty holding it together right. throughout the entire uh, skit. So uh, back to this, though, the victims, they don't seem to immediately recall their experiences. This is an important part, right? So my assumption was, was always like, well, you just kind of like wake up in bed and you're like, whoa, I was abducted by aliens, right? But it's not actually along those lines. It's usually you don't recall what happens. You notice that you've lost a chunk of time from your memories. And then you start experiencing panic attacks, stomach pains, or psychological distress afterward. And then it's because of those symptoms that you start kind of looking inward. Why am I feeling like this? So sometimes people don't realize they've been 
well, they don't come to the realization of their abduction until after treatment. And, and this is usually in the form of hypnosis. Now, abductees often experience a range of maladies, both physical and psychological. And this leads them to go consult a mental health professional. And that can include anything from anxieties to phobias, nightmares, aches and pains. And as we mentioned earlier, the missing time thing, sometimes victims don't know what happened to them. So it's not like they, they visit this person and they say, I, I know that this was an alien thing. I just need you to confirm it. Right. right. Usually they're, they're terrified because they're like, am I having some kind of uh, brain event? You know, but, you know, you can imagine a certain amount of uh, self-diagnosis going on here as well, where yeah. you're, you have some sort of uh, symptom that's – if it's not completely unexplainable, then at least it's it's bothersome. It's causing some anxiety. And then you start casting ar- around for some sort of, of an explanation. Now, maybe, yeah. you know, for the modern listener, you go to WebMD or something and you start looking at symptoms and driving yourself crazy that way. Yeah. But you could also very easily go to a, an alien abduction uh, Reddit board or a message board of some kind or watch an episode of Unsolved Mysteries back in the 90s and <laughs> right. you start thinking, oh, my goodness, what maybe this is what happened to me. I mean, or another like paranormal narrative like ghosts yeah. or angels visited. What you know, it really depends on kind of what fits your cultural worldview. Yeah, if the if the, the soil is fertile for that idea to really grow. Okay, so and another thing that I didn't realize, and this seems really important, is that most abductees report the experience as being positive. They see it as a life-changing thing. In fact, Susan Clancy, who's somebody we're gonna cite a lot in this episode, she wrote a book in 2007 about the phenomenon, she found that it's often related to humans' need to believe in something. She says, quote, people go through life trying on belief systems for size. Some of these belief systems speak to powerful emotional needs that have little to do with science, the need to feel less alone in the world, the desire to have special powers or abilities, the longing to know that there is something out there, something more important than you that's watching over you. For many people, belief in alien abduction gratifies spiritual hungers. It reassures them about their place in the universe and their own significance. Now, one abductee actually said to her in, in the interviews, said he the experience made him realize he wasn't alone in the universe and that there were beings out there who cared about him and that getting to that point was a really arduous journey. It was like a hero's journey for, for this person mm-hmm. because there were a lot of people along the way who wanted to deny his experience. Yeah, the, the, I think these are very important points because on, on one hand, yeah, everyone wants to be a part of a a just a human community and and what brings a community more uh, together more than than shared beliefs yeah so if you can you can find people that that also say yeah i think this is really happening and this happened to me it brings you together and then on the other hand it People want to believe in something uh, you know bigger than themselves they want to they want some sort of a spiritual model, but there's often this uh the problem of proof how do you how do you really cement that belief and you know, there's a whole argument that the the witchcraft persecutions of the past, a lot of that, I believe I've talked about this in the show before, um, the author Walter Stevens goes into it in his book uh, uh, titled Demon Lovers, where he talks about witchcraft persecution being largely a, a way for individuals within the church with a conflict of, uh, of faith to be able to say, look, here is physical proof of the supernatural because this witch had sex with a demon, and if demons right. are real, then so are angels. So if you have been, say, 
if if you've been experimented upon by an alien, that's your your experience. And certainly, if you have, uh, you know, you can point to your arm and say, like this, I think there's a chip under here. Yeah. Then you can. This is physical proof. This is your physical proof of something greater than yourself. Of this, essentially, a spiritual world that you have connection to. And ultimately, what's difference? What's the difference between uh, the stigmata? And uh, the you know the scar of the microchip implant that you believe in. Yeah, th- that's a really good point, right? And and I think it speaks to a larger thing that we're going to get into further down the road here. But just that we are at a point in time where religion and government and family and they're not necessarily as communally universal as they used to be, right? Mm-hmm. And so subsequently. We find ourselves turning to other avenues for that human desire for belief, whether it's, you know, uh, stigmata, whether it's video games, whether it's a uh, fandom, right? Like there's all manner mm-hmm. of things to find your version of community in, right? And I think this can fall into that. But how does that compare to other paranormal events then? Well, you know, we've we brought up the episode that we did a while back on satanic panic and the, uh, the satanic ritual abuse situation. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I think there's a, there's a lot of, there are a lot of connecting threads there. And really, alien abduction is so much better. So you can instantly such a more, more positive uh, fiction to layer over your, uh, your mind because you're not victimizing anybody. You're like you're right. not pointing at another human and saying. Other than yourself. Well. Right. Yeah, and I could see where in certain models that could take on a, a harmful, um, a, a harmful form. But yeah, you're not you're not making legal charges of right. uh, of abuse against somebody. You're, if anything, you're you're accusing aliens of physical abuse. Yeah, this uh, immediately made me re- recall, no pun intended, the book Michelle Remembers from the '70s, which mm-hmm. we talked about in our Satanic Panic episode. That this was like. This was a thing going into the 80s, like recalling memories that had been repressed, right? And as we learned then, and we're going to learn through here, sometimes those recalled memories weren't necessarily real. Yeah. Now, along those lines, there is a historical trajectory of the alien abduction experience. The reports really seem to be marked by the 1940s and 1950s golden age of science fiction in the U.S., and it was very popular due to the dawn of the space age. Uh, I'm speaking of the science fiction stuff, not of the alien abductions. Also, we have to remember the Roswell incident, which we now sort of think of as being this fantastical thing that's connected to TV shows. It was a real thing that happened in New Mexico in 1947. So that panicked people as well. Uh, this grew into the 1960s and then afterward, hundreds of thousands of people have reported being abducted. That's important. Like when I think of this, I think like, yeah, there's probably like a hundred people out there. Mm-hmm. So way more than that. Like this is a way more common experience than you would think. Now, of course, within that, we're talking about self-reports of paranormal experience. So within yeah. that community, like you have to ask, well, okay, how many people are just straight up making it up? How many people are in that weird area where they're they're kind of lying, but they're they've gotten to the point where they believe it? How many people are like just legitimately one hundred percent behind what they're saying? I mean, there's a yeah. there's a wide spectrum there. I think for uh, for individuals buying into the uh, the beliefs that they are uh, espousing. I mean, we see that in yeah. religion all the time. You know, how many people are just die in the wool believers yeah, who can right. say that they had a a personal, uh, you know, supernatural experience and how many people are, you know, elsewhere on the scale. 
Yeah, and it's interesting too because the like I said earlier, the researchers tend to focus a little bit more on that, like are you lying or are you not, rather than mm-hmm. what's happening here. And the the research that we looked at for today is is more about what's happening here. Yeah. Um, we have to mention this one case because I, I I briefly talked about it earlier, but the most famous early case is Barney and Betty Hill, and this was in 1961. They were driving near Indian Head, New Hampshire, when they saw a bright object in the sky. It followed their car, and they stopped, and they saw a disc-shaped craft that had windows, and the windows were filled with watching figures. They drove away from this, but then they felt a tingling sensation in their bodies. When they got home, they realized it had actually taken them two hours to get there. Betty afterwards kept having recurring nightmares Uh, Both of them underwent hypnosis therapy with a psychiatrist, and this brought out their story of an alleged abduction and examination. And the experience – this is interesting, and maybe if we do trailer talk, we can try to find something on this. But uh, there was a 1975 made-for-TV movie called The UFO Incident where James Earl Jones played Barney. I was totally unaware of that. Yeah, I mean it's such an interesting case because, again, it's it's the the early 1960s. And it's a it's a biracial couple. Yeah. Uh, and and just the fact that it's a, a male and a female, because as as we'll discuss later, for a, a long time you saw a far more female uh, individuals claiming they had an abduction experience. Meanwhile, you saw more male representations in media. Yeah. Because that's the kind of fiction uh, that was predominant. Uh, but yeah, you go back to sort of K zero, and it's this. Uh, you know this this weird this this kind of strangely diverse uh, uh, sampling. Yeah, it plays against the stereotype yeah. that has been established for sure. Do you want to talk about Fatima? Because uh, this is actually uh, close to an episode that I've been proposing that we do for a while now, but we have to find a place to land on it. I've I've always wanted us to talk about the Marian apparitions, and mm-hmm. this is Fatima was where one of those happened. Oh yeah, so this is essentially a UFO encounter in terms of you know un- unidentified flying object. But in 1917, before any of the alien abduction stuff took off, uh, in what was uh, what has subsequently been explained as everything from uh, stratospheric dust to mass hallucination, you had thousands of people claiming to witness um, uh, this paranormal experience in a predominantly Catholic town. They claimed to see Virgin Mary arrive in, quote, an airplane of light. So... Before the advent of Christianity, the same sort of event would have likely been viewed through the lens of you know a, a, a pagan belief system. Uh, but how do you how do you think such an event would be interpreted today in a world flavored more you know by scientific dominance, uh, the decline of religion, and mainstream science fiction? Yeah. You would think that it's some sort of a, an alien being visiting our world. Like if I yeah. looked up and saw that, I would. That's really where my mind would probably go first. Yeah, right. And also, I'm not as familiar with the Fatima story as I'd like to be, but why would we automatically assume it's Mary, right? Like, even if it appears Mm -hmm. as a female human being, that doesn't necessarily strike the narrative chord that's common with the two of us, at least. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you look at the the people and the place and the time, and and you realize this was their predominant narrative for supernatural occurrences. And so that is what they went to. That's what their minds went to when they when they observed this or experienced this. All right, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. And uh, when we come back, we're going to discuss, well, what's what's actually happening? Uh, we've we've mentioned the idea that there are, you know, there are hallucination and memory issues, uh, sleep paralysis, etc. We're going to get into those. We're going to discuss uh, those explanations when we get back. 
All right, we're back. So, all right, what's actually happening? We've pretty pretty much outlined like the cultural narrative of alien abductions. What's common for the cases? Obviously, what we what we were speaking of there was in generalization. You know, if there are specific uh, cases, they could play out in any variety of ways. But what do we think is actually going on here? Like what? What has come about from our scientists sitting down and interviewing and studying abductees? Yeah, this is where it gets uh, it gets pretty fascinating because it's the the abductees that you can uh, that you can study because yeah. when it comes to just seeing a UFO, there's not a lot you can do. Like there's no, <laughs> there are no physical signs of that, and we've already discussed the, some of the problems that come into play when you're talking about footage. Uh, in fact, that's that's one of the arguments that uh, that has been made. That we that that people are believing less in alien abduction and UFOs because everyone has a camera phone now, yeah. and you're not seeing like the the, the wealth of UFO sightings that you, that you might expect if they were actually occurring. Well, and also CGI is becoming something that people can do in their home. You know, like mm-hmm. uh, I think about the episode that you and Joe did on on Canny Valley and the idea that like we're about to hit a point technologically where we can replicate a real human being but put them in a scenario where they act out and say things oh, yeah. that they didn't actually do in real life and then you apply that to something like this who knows what you can believe when it's it comes true. to footage but with the individual you know there there we have that physical or that alleged physical proof that can be evaluated to varying degrees be it physical or psychologically yeah. So there's all kinds of possibilities from hallucinations to lucid dreams, which we've talked about extensively on the show before, or just plain fantasies, right? And the explanations range from sleep apnea to sleep paralysis to hysteria to psychosis. Now, sleep paralysis seems to be a really interesting landing point for a lot of more empirically minded researchers on alien abduction. And in fact, Robert has done a fantastic sleep paralysis video that you can find on StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That was a fun one. Yeah, and I, I believe we've talked about about it on the show before, too. Probably more in terms of, like, incubi and succubi and whatnot. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, the basic idea is in your dream, you could have a dream about being a kung fu fighter, for instance. Mm. But your body is on lockdown, and that's to keep you from kung fu fighting anyone who's in bed with you or you know falling out destroying lamps that sort of thing yeah that is the basic idea uh but there are ver- various um conditions that can interfere with that and one of those is sleep paralysis and, and in this scenario you wake up but your body's still on lockdown and on top of that it's also not just a oh i'm awake now my body won't move which is frightening enough but you're also going to be in that uh that nether space between dream dreaming and being awake you're going to be in that uh hypnopomic uh state where you're susceptible to these hallucinations i think uh, a lot of us have probably experienced this to some degree you know where you're there, there are two versions of this one is descending into sleep and one is arising um i've experienced the 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 former where i'm like reading yeah. if you're forcing yourself to read a book and you're, you really should go to sleep you're trying to keep going and then you start reading things that aren't there yep I've well, done that, yeah. Though that's one example of this nether space we're talking about. The other is if you've ever woken up and been enough in the dream state that you still sort of perceive the dreams in reality. Like uh, the, the, the the best example I have of this is I remember being a, a kid and having a dream about having this like robot toy that was just amazing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and then I woke up and at least for like a split second, it was, it was there in yeah. the bed with me and then it wasn't. Now, 
there are few things as an adult that an individual you know wants as much I think as a child wants a toy. Uh, but uh, so, so maybe that's one reason I've never experienced anything like that since. But uh, but it, you know it's an example where I was I was somewhere in between dream and and wakefulness. Yeah, my wife actually uh, used to get night terrors, mm-hmm. and we if we had anything hanging up in the bedroom that had like a an odd pattern on it, she would wake up in the middle of the night, not realize that she was still sort of in a dream state. And she would think like spiders or something was moving around on, on whatever it was, whether it was a poster or a tapestry or or whatever. Um, so we've, we've kind of, you know, gotten used to that now and try not to hang up things like that, that would invoke that state. But yeah, whereas like, I've never had an experience like that other than, uh, in the, uh, Satanic Panic episode and in the Exorcism episode, I've mentioned my experience when I was younger and I had snow blindness and I yes. thought there was a mm-hmm. demon in the room with me. But but nothing nothing like that where there were, you know, I, I didn't know if I was dreaming or awake. Now, sleep paralysis, we're going to we're going to break it down here. But I, I got to recommend this movie, The Nightmare, if people really want to spend like a good like hour and a half with the concept of sleep paralysis. Oh, yeah. I believe it's on Netflix right now. Yeah, I think so. And it's uh, done by the same people who did that great uh, documentary on The Shining Room 237. Uh, so definitely check that out. It taps into the alien abduction narrative stuff too. But this one is more, this is a dot more of a legitimate documentary, right? right because the, yeah. the thing about the shining documentary is that it's a documentary about a fake, yeah. uh, conspiracy, like a basically a conspiracy yeah. theory that was made up and multiple just, conspiracy theories. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. Uh, that just ended up like having a sort of truthiness to it. Like you could yeah. see like, Oh, I could, I could see Stanley Kubrick faking a moon landing because he was guilty about blah, blah, blah. But yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whereas the nightmare is more like they're actually interviewing people who have had okay. sleep paralysis experiences. Yeah, but they reenact some of the experience. They do. Right? Yeah. yeah. Uh huh. So you're, you wake up in the state of sleep paralysis. Okay. And, uh, and things are not, you know, 100% waking reality. And, and things could be, uh, you could be essentially be experiencing a sexual hallucination that's colored by your subconscious. And, uh, the exact nature of that hallucination could depend, like your dreams, on just the nature of your belief system, your cultural literacy. What you watched on television the night before, um, you know, what you're really into or what you're doing. I mean, just think to your dreams, you know, yeah. and you can see the the diversity that is in play. I can give you a perfect example of this based on last night. Are you okay. ready? Yeah. OK. So the day we're recording this is the, uh, you know, the television show at midnight. Yes. This is today's the last day. It's it's canceled and this is going to be the last episode. And I read about that right before I went to bed last night. Mm-hmm. And then I had a dream that I was stuck with Chris Hardwick in a dorm room <laughs> and that we were packing up his dorm room because he had to move out of there. Huh. And it just kept going and going and going. And it was it was one of those dreams like we talked about this in our lucid dream episode where you can't quite get out of it. Like even if you wake up, go to the bathroom and come back and fall back asleep again, like it kept going and I was convinced that I was stuck. I had to help him pack up all this stuff. And there was just like an infinity of things in his room that no matter how long we packed, it would never finish. Well, this is interesting because the the dorm room narrative, the dorm room situation, I'm just going to guess and say this is probably not one that you draw from a lot. This is probably not something you're using in your in your in your fiction or your comics or you're you're not reading like college dorm uh, literature. Right. But but the brain just latches onto it. and It's like, all right, this is what we're going with. Well, yeah, I mean, I know exactly where this came from. My wife and I are planning to move in the next couple of months. Mm -hmm. So I've already like, for instance, I've started going through things and packing them up and putting them in boxes 
resources and thinking about like, what do I need to get rid of to make moving out easier? Right. And then I just read that small piece of information and it somehow got lodged into the back of my subconscious and then manifested as Chris Hardwick in my dream. All right. Well, I'll come back to this thread in just a second, but uh, I believe you have a little more to say about uh, sleep paralysis. Yeah. I just want to give our audience a little more information here. It's often attributed as a catalyst event that leads to the formation of false memories. And what we're talking about here is the basics. It's a non-pathological phenomenon that occurs because of a temporary discordance in rapid eye movement sleep. And it causes sensory input to be blocked and motor output to be inhibited. So subsequently, a sufferer of this is experiencing both internal dream stimuli and external sensory stimuli. Again, you say like, I've never heard of this. This sounds ridiculous, right? Well, actually, 30% of the population has had at least one instance of this in their life. 5% of the population experience vivid, visual, auditory, and tactile hallucinations. And it should be made clear, too, that these are without drugs or alcohol in relation to this. The Japanese actually have a term for this. It's so common called Kanishibari, and it is represented as a devil stepping on a sleeper's chest, while the Chinese call it guia, or ghost pressure. I want to see a movie called Ghost Pressure. (laughs) Uh, And then i got to come back to Susan Clancy. Uh, As I mentioned, a lot of her research... Uh, related to alien abduction really kept popping up all over the place for this episode. She's one of the main researchers on sleep paralysis as an explanation for alien abductions, and she categorizes it into three different groups based on qualities. The first one is called intruder sleep paralysis, and this is when you have hallucinations that include the sense of a threatening presence in the room as well as strange noises, footsteps, voices, and the physical sensation of somebody touching you. Then there's the incubus sleep paralysis, which leads back to you mentioned we've we've talked about it before. This includes hallucinations of breathing difficulty as well as the sensation of impending death or bodily harm. So that's your ghost pressure, essentially, right? Something's pushing down on you. And then the pushing down on you. (laughs) And then the last one is vestibular motor sleep paralysis. And this manifests as sensations of movement such as falling or accelerating upward out of bed. I think a lot of us have experienced that. Right. Or at least in my case, it's the one where you're like walking down uh, stairs in a dream and then all of a sudden the stairs give out from underneath you. Oh, yeah. Or slipping. I've slipped and fallen in, in dream states and woken up. Yeah. Now, the first two of these, intruder and incubus, are heavily implicated in alien abduction phenomena. But in a 2005 study, McNally, uh, who's like a partner of Clancy's and Clancy, they interviewed 10 abductees and they described their experiences of alien abduction in terms of sleep paralysis. It all lined up. All the elements reported were consistent with these kind of hallucinations, but they were only recovered by the individual following hypnotherapy. And of course, in all this, it's just important to remember that when you're talking about memory, you're talking about something that is malleable. Uh, every time you recall a memory, it's susceptible to change. Yeah, that's uh, super important to yeah. remember. So, uh, and that and that also means I think they actually pointed this out. This was on the there was a line on the uh, the, the television series The Expanse where they mentioned that the memories that are the most important to you are the ones that you can trust the least yeah. because you've drawn them out so much and you've you've manipulated them. So you can imagine the situation with a life changing uh, event like an alien abduction scenario. Like this is a memory that is even more untrustworthy because you keep 
touching it. You keep it's like a lump of clay. Yeah, if you keep taking it out, reforming it, and then putting it away. Exactly, dries up a little. If you're going to, in, and you might be letting other people <laughs> touch it yeah, as well and influence yeah. it. So you got to take that into case. Now, um, uh, one interesting, uh, I think, example of two of the, the skeptical approach to all of this is um, the experience of Michael Shermer. Now, if, if, if you're not familiar with Michael Shermer, uh, you should seek him out on social media. He is uh, he's very active there. Uh, he's, he is always sharing his opinions on a number of different scientific and and uh, and, and of course, you know, criticizing pseudoscientific endeavors. He's um, the the editor of this of Skeptic magazine. Uh, so he's he's been active for a number of years in the skeptic community. But he himself experienced an alien abduction, or rather what happened is he collapsed from sleep deprivation and exhaustion following an 83-hour bike ride uh, in a transcontinental race. And as Shermer's support team rushed over to him to tend to him, uh, Shermer saw them through the filter of a waking dream, and he perceived them as aliens from a 1960s television series. Yeah, this is very much in the line of that Jose's Chung from Outer Space episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're interviewing an abductee, and in multiple different scenarios during the interviews, she sees them. She, she either sees them as aliens, or she sees them as men in black, or she sees them as uh, soldiers in the army. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's different lenses that are, the perceptions coming through. Yeah. But in Schirmer's case, I think one of the, the, the cool things is like he he's I've, I've never seen him indicate like, yeah, I was super into that 1960s TV show. Like it's just yeah. it's it's as if the brain just casts about for some one of these lenses, something that will make sense of what's happening. And suddenly there it is. And then a lot of it falls to what you do with it afterwards. Like Shermer yeah. approached it from a skeptical point of view, had a was in the position to then say, oh, well, this is what was happening. Obviously, I wasn't in, you know visited by aliens he also of course had the experience of being able to talk to the the, the team who came in and uh, and attended to him like you know he he knew straight up this was not an alien abduction uh, and he was able to to work from that point on in his life but was someone else might not have the same tools the same opportunities and they're left to pursue a different uh, uh, route in understanding what happened right yeah and th- that's the important part too is that like we need to be able to distinguish memories and then what's the difference between false memories or recovered memories because these terms get thrown around a mm-hmm. lot, right? And for him, it's very easy for him to say, oh, that was a false memory because there were other people there with me, right? And they, right. Helped, they helped clarify. But then the question is, can can a false memory and a recovered memory be the same thing? And it seems like the answer should be no. Specifically, researchers are interested in whether recovered memories are authentic, Right. And if they're not, is that because the people who are relating them are lying or is it because this is a manifestation of an involuntary mechanism that we don't have any control over? You know, Uh, the latter seems to be more probable based on evidence. So the discussion tends to focus on the idea of what we're calling false memories here. Yeah, false memories is is a fascinating area unto itself. And one, I think one of the important things to remember about False memories versus authentic memories uh, is to first of all get into that area where you realize memories are not a video recording. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, every time we draw them out, we manipulate them a little bit. So uh, memory, this is why you have such a problem with eyewitness testimony in, in, in so many criminal trials. Mm-hmm. So 
when you when you and also you have to break down their different. Their, we remember things in different ways. Memory work is, is more complex than just a, this sort of videotape kind of metaphor that we often draw upon. There's a, an excellent book on this topic titled "The Seven Sins of Memory: How the Mind Forgets and Remembers" by Daniel uh, Schachter. Uh, highly recommend it, but he breaks it down into a few different categories. You know those seven sins. There's transience, which is the weakening or loss of memory over time. So, you know, this is just the idea of someone's older and they, their memories are faded. Sure. There's absent-mindedness. So this just gets down to attention in memory. You weren't actually that attentive to a series of events. And then afterwards, your brain is kind of filling in the uh, uh, the details. Like one of the big right. examples of this is September 11th, people who remember what they had for for breakfast and what they were wearing, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And actual investigations of this have turned out that that's often not the case. You don't actually remember all that stuff, but your brain is kind of working in a way where it's like, hey, you just focus on surviving and we'll just make up all the details for what you ate yeah. for, for lunch. Um, there's blocking. So these are failed attempts to recall tidbits of memory, a face, and name. There's misattribution. This is when we recall an authentic memory but aspects of it are misattributed. And this could include a potential scenario, say, where one is dealing with a an actual traumatic experience, maybe an actual case of abuse or even sexual abuse. But then you end up, you're recalling it wrapped up in some sort of fantastic form. Uh, or there is, I believe there's one account that uh, the Schachter himself referred to where an individual was assaulted in a room and there was somebody on the television screen. Okay. And she identified her attacker as the individual on the television screen. Oh, okay. Uh, just because that's how the brain stitched it together. That's how the memory was formed. Right. There's, of course, suggestibility, power of suggestion. That, of course, is a huge factor in our uh, satanic panic episode where if you have someone who is going to make heavy suggestions that some sort of uh, scenario took place, then that can influence your memory of what happened. And then there's bias as well, just the power of uh, bias or racial bias coming into play. Yeah. And then persistence. So this is a... The failure of, of, of the memory system involves uh, uh, the unwanted recall of information that is disturbing. So mm-hmm. this just, I think, I just present all this to to to, uh, to drive home that memory is this uh, is this complex system with multiple moving parts, and all of those parts can contribute to the creation of false memories. And then there's a, this whole additional area of, uh, of of describing what's happening in the brain when one is having a paranormal experience. Uh, neuroscientist uh, Michael Persinger points out uh, the finger to the brain's temporal lobe. Here, seizures can produce feelings of deja vu. Persinger believes that the temporal lobe anomalies, when combined with certain cultural experiences, such as belief in angels or aliens, uh, can mislabel imagined experiences as actual events. So, uh, so yeah, we're get also getting into not only like sort of the misfiring of memory systems, but the misfiring of other parts of the brains as well. Uh, but even while, without the aid of neurological misfiring, again, human memory is complex. It's fallible. Every day we encounter new experiences and then craft that experience into an imperfect narrative. We convince ourselves that we can, you know, ultimately convince ourselves of nearly anything, especially when it fulfills a need, such as explaining what happened. Yeah. And even with explanations like our realizations that memory is imperfect or the the thought that, oh, something's going on here in the actual organ of the brain, some people just assume, well, anybody with an alien abduction story, they must be crazy, right? Mm-hmm. The, that's got to be what's going on. In fact, the, the, the gag in Jose Chung's is that every single person they talk to about it starts off by saying, 
well, this is going to sound crazy, but mm-hmm. dot, dot, dot. Now, the study by Clancy and McNally that I mentioned earlier, it actually showed that the mental health of abductees doesn't differ dramatically from the general population. They tested 10 abductees. Four of them didn't qualify for a single diagnosis in the DSM-4. The others had phobias that are pretty common. They were scared of insects. They had anxiety disorders, alcoholism, bipolar disorder. Maybe one of them had PTSD and then panic disorder, okay? But these are, you know, fairly common things. I think if you'd sample, like, a room full of your coworkers, those would be common. Mm-hmm. But none of them qualified for schizophrenia. In fact, their mean depression and anxiety scores were well within normal limits. And the only place where they differed from the general population was primarily in three areas that they scored higher in. And these are really interesting. The first is dissociative experiences. So they measured this with a scale. They, they This basically looks at the mind's ability to tap into alterations of consciousness. So, for instance... Uh, zoning out when you're driving mm-hmm. or not being able to recognize your own reflection when you're looking in a, in a mirror. The, uh, the second one of these was the absorption scale. And that looked at an individual's proneness to being absorbed in imagery experiences, imaginary experiences. For instance, reading a novel or watching a movie, right? Like the, the, the level that you let yourself uh, be enthralled by the narrative. And then the magical ideation scale that assesses the individual's beliefs in paranormal phenomena such as ghosts, aliens, psychic powers, and the existence of magic. Now, I read about these three scales, and my first thought was, you, Joe, and I need to take these tests. Like, yeah, we need to get them be... to send those tests here, and then we should take them. <laughs> that seems like it would be a great Facebook Live event. Likewise, uh, researchers Hugh and Rogers did another study in 2008, and they compared 26 alien abductees with 26 non-abductees. And they used scales to measure their fantasy proneness and their emotional intelligence. And they found there was no significant difference between the abductees and the non-abductees in their self-reporting. Now, again, this led to the conclusion that abductees and the general population really aren't all that different psychologically. The differences seem to be more on like kind of an individual level than a psychological level. The abductees tend to be more interested in UFOs or aliens before they actually have this experience. Likewise, they tend to seek a therapist who is also interested in that subject matter. And there does seem to be a relationship between abductees and dissociation, absorption, and magical ideation. You know, th- this lines up a lot with what, uh, with actually what Carl Jung said, uh, because, uh, he was actually asked about UFOs and, and, and whatnot in mm. a, a 1958 interview. And he said, quote, in our world, miracles do not happen anymore. And we feel that something simply must happen, which will provide an answer or show the way out. So now these UFOs are appearing in the sky. And in uh, the late 1990s, psychologists uh, Roy F. Uh, Baumistmeister and Leonard S. Newman, they furthered this viewpoint by arguing that abduction encounters are essentially subconscious attempts to rid oneself of self-awareness through masochistic fantasy. And in lieu of mystic uh, conviction, our minds uh, staff these fantasies with little gray men. Now, of course, our cultural frame of reference continually changes. Some observers have have even equated the the recent decline in UFO sightings with uh, the rise of uh, of the internet. Uh, you know, for instance, a cultural critic uh, Zod and Sodder suggests that instead of projecting our hopes and fears into space, we're projecting them into cyberspace. 
I have to say, this makes me wonder. So if you go with this argument that people are experiencing alien abductions less and they're reporting them less, which, again, is, is, is arguable. Yeah. Why are we not seeing more people explaining or, or draping their paranormal experiences in uh, within the idea that we're potentially living within a computer simulation? Mm, you know, that, mm-hmm. that theory. Like maybe that theory just hasn't. It hasn't exploded in in the mainstream media. The ball's enough. just now getting roll, rolling on that. Yeah, yeah, like I can I could easily imagine a scenario where that becomes the new narrative if it yeah. picks up enough steam. Where someone's like, "Hey, I had this experience, uh, and I clicked out of our reality, and I was in the real reality for a little bit." Right, the Matrix. And, yeah, essentially the Matrix scenario. Yeah. yeah. So related, I have a couple notes here about that Newman and Baumeister study. Uh, they basically created a model for explaining this, and they called it cognitive motivational hypothesis. And this maintained that people who claim alien abduction experiences are looking for a narrative that will provide us an escape from ourselves, and that it represents a masochistic wish to experience pain, powerlessness, and humiliation on a grand cosmic level. Baumeister himself actually said that abductees are masochists who unconsciously want to relinquish control of their lives. And I immediately thought that this is like uh, cosmic horror as some kind of existentialism, right? <laughs> like yeah. It's like, oh, I want there to be something so big and beyond my understanding that that can make my existence make sense. Well, you know, we'll probably we're going to do a part two for this episode, and we'll probably we're going to get into more of the cultural stuff there. But you know, one one thing that we're going to discuss in that is some of the demographics, like the idea that that for the long, despite the the original demographics of the sort of the the, the case zero of alien abduction, yeah. you saw mostly white American kind of middle class males uh, experiencing these things, and. There's this this idea that like these these might have been some of the the key individuals who were were pining for this release. They're, they're kind of in this situation yeah. where like here you go, it's the it's the 1980s, it's the American dream. Go out, nothing's stopping you. Just go right. out there, work hard, and build your life. And so there's this there's this kind of this uh, this this pressure then on that individual to to you know to fulfill this American dream. And then here's this, there's this out, you know, this is the yeah. idea that like, I, I can't achieve it because this happened to me. It's kind of like if, uh, like the fifth or sixth season of Mad Men was Don Draper got abducted by aliens. That would have been a great sequence. Yeah. I, or maybe <laughs> I, I would have gone for that. Maybe they'll do an extra episode where that, that takes place. Um, it is important though, like you, you're right. There's this argument going around that UFO sightings have gone away, right? And that there's another argument that says, no, they haven't gone away, but that online forums have simply allowed people just an accessible inside group where they can share their stories. Yeah. I mean, it, imagine if you had an experience like this or, or you felt you had an experience like this. Uh, where would you go to now? It, whereas like someone 10 or 20 years ago might have run to the, the, the nightly news or caught up the newspaper. Right. I think now, uh, A, our media is changing. You Those tweet are not, it. You tweet it or you go to Reddit and you look up the alien abduction board. Yeah. I visited that board uh, just, just yesterday uh, out of research for this episode, and there are people talking about alien abductions uh, and, and talking about their experiences. 
those are the places you're going to go to. And then when you go the, to these places, to these online communities to discuss it, you're kind of going to be in the same sort of echo chambers that everyone is in these days, uh, you know, cut away in their own little social or sociopolitical realm, mm-hmm. their own cultural realm, and then, you know, talking, occasionally talking about all the crazy stuff that other individuals are doing outside of your bubble. All right. So really in all this, we come back again to the sock puppet. You know, we, we've we've talked in broad strokes about all the various um, psychological, neuroscientific uh, events that could be occurring and then, you know, how we're manipulating memory. But but then how, we end up having to stitch that sock puppet together, that that explanation, that sort of flavoring, that narrative that describes and fills in the details of this paranormal experience. Where do we get that from and what does it say about the 20th century. We're going to get into that in the next episode. So this episode published on a Tuesday. The next episode publishes on Thursday. I'll make sure there's a there's a link to the next episode on the landing page for this episode once it publishes. Yeah, and if you're wondering, sometimes people hear us say that, the landing page, and they don't quite know what we mean. We're talking about StuffToBullyYourMind.com. That's where all this stuff lives. You might be subscribing to the show through iTunes or Google Play or Spotify or whatever, but if you go to StuffToBullyYourMind.com, it's got the the MP3 downloads for all the episodes right there, but also uh, our notes about things and, and then obviously ways that you can get in touch with us through social media, right? So we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Tumblr, we're on Instagram, and then We've just added a new method that we're going to only tell you about here, people. (laughs) This is what we're calling the discussion module, and it exists on Facebook. We have so many people on our Facebook page that we found that the interactions there aren't generally with podcast listeners. It's with people who just kind of stumbled across the page. So we've made this discussion group so we can actually all talk together on a common basis about the things that the show is about and new episodes. And lots of people are posting in there, either introducing themselves or showing us articles that we haven't seen yet about cool things that we could talk about in the future. Yeah, yeah, so check it out. Uh, you can find a link for it uh, on the Stuff to Blow Your Mind Facebook page. And hey, if you want to get in touch with us the old-fashioned way, you can shoot us an email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.